Please open the Word of God once again to Mark's Gospel. We're in Mark chapter 15 now. It's been almost a couple years in Mark's Gospel, and it has been a blessing to see the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, his identity, his miracles, and now his passion, the passion of our Lord It's now Friday morning of Holy Week, and Jesus has been, we've seen, arrested and tried and condemned in a religious trial before the religious leaders of Israel. And in this trial, the high priest is really attempting to uh, obtain charges that he will need to uh, condemn Jesus as a blasphemer. Now, that would be necessary in order to gain Jewish support for Jesus' execution. But the Jewish Sanhedrin also need Jesus to be convicted on political charges if they are going to have him executed by the Roman government. And so today's text unfolds some of that political trial in Mark's gospel. And we also need to keep in context here what happened just a few chapters ago in Mark chapter 11. Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It happened on Sunday of this very same week. Jesus is entering Jerusalem, riding on a donkey to fulfill scripture, and he is hailed by many as Israel's king, Israel's Messiah. So how do we get then from the triumphal entry in chapter 11, where Jesus is being hailed as the king of Israel, to chapter 15, where he is rejected and he is sentenced to crucifixion? Well, our text will help us explore that question by showing us some of the reasons behind Jesus' rejection. But let's stand for respect of the reading of God's word, and let's read our text, Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 15 in the word of God. Early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation, and binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Pilate questioned him. Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, It is as you say. The chief priest began to accuse him harshly. Then Pilate questioned him again, saying, Do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer. So Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. The man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. And the crowd went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. Pilate answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. Answering again, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, crucify him. But Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. That's the reading of God's inerrant word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Our Holy Father in heaven, we approach your throne asking for understanding of your word, asking you to help us in our weakness. Many are tired, many are distracted, there are many things on our minds, I'm sure, 
But God, during this time, we ask for the power of your Holy Spirit. For myself, O Lord, that you would enable me to communicate your words as I ought. Let your word go forth with power. And Father, we ask for everyone here, everyone listening, God, that you would give them ears to hear. Give us ears to hear and hearts to respond to your word. This we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Today's story reminds me of a very familiar scene from Macbeth, one of Shakespeare's tragedies. Lady Macbeth compels her husband to murder their king while he's staying the night in their castle. She's only too glad when the deed is actually done because she has now become queen of Scotland. Her husband is now a king. But after a while, by the middle of the play, Lady Macbeth appears on the stage suddenly hallucinating. She believes her hands are stained with her king's blood. And in the state of delirium, as she appears sleepwalking across the stage, she's incessantly attempting to remove these stains from her hands. She's attempting to remove the blood of the king whom she's rejected, but she cannot. She cannot remove the stains no matter how hard she tries. And so she commits suicide off stage, and so ends Lady Macbeth. By killing her king, Lady Macbeth had assumed that she would gain everything she wanted. And in a sense, she did. She wanted to be queen. And by killing her king, she became queen. She realized everything she wanted. But what she didn't realize is that in rejecting her king, she was rejecting her own hope of life and happiness. And that's much like the story before us in Mark's gospel. Three times in our text, and six times in chapter 15, the word king appears. And each time it's used of Jesus. The story before us is backgrounded by the kingship of Jesus. Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Messiah. And our story involves the rejection of this king, culminating in his murder. It's a story of regicide, a term that means the act of killing a king. And like Lady Macbeth, the characters in our story will also try to wash their hands of their regicidal rejection. But the consequences for rejecting this king are eternal. Because this king, as Mark has been endeavoring to show us from the very beginning of his gospel, this king is the Christ. This king is the Son of God. And by rejecting him, we are rejecting Life eternal. The key question of this text comes to us from the mouth of Pilate in verse 11. What shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? The question that comes to us this morning is what will you do with your king? When it comes to rejecting Christ, the act of rejection itself may come in different shapes and sizes, we'll see. Rejection of Christ doesn't always look the same, but it always means the same. It is rejecting Christ for everything he claimed to be. It is rejecting Christ as the Son of God, as the Savior, as your Lord and your King. The timeless truth of our text then is that nothing could be possibly worth rejecting Jesus Christ. Nothing could possibly be worth rejecting Jesus Christ. The worst mistake of a man's life is rejecting Christ for who he is. And the threefold 
rejection taking place in our text, we'll see here, uh, there's three, gives us three reasons, among many, that people reject Christ. They are with us to this day. The first we see is the religious powers rejected Christ due to envy. They're motivated by envy. That becomes explicit in verse 10. And this was evident to the objective observer, in this case Pilate, who had no uh, skin in the game. But for all their envy and hatred of Christ, they sure go, these religious rulers sure go through the process of attempting to make their judgment appear just. Notice how they attempt to conceal their envy with this crusade of justice. We see verse 1 indicates three things, three measures these religious leaders take to conceal their envy for Christ. Early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and the scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation. First, they try Jesus again as if they're concerned with justice. Now, no further consultation was needed. We know that from the very beginning, these men had reached a verdict about Jesus. They were determined to kill him. This is all a show trial. And this here is the final act, as it were, in Jesus' show trial. But this public retrial that takes place in the morning now is an attempt to make their verdict all the more seemingly official looking. And, uh, and so this retrial would have been held in the chamber of hewn stone where all trials should have taken place. And it is being held before all the Sanhedrin now. So it has a much more legal semblance to it than the, the previous two phases of the trial we've studied. And binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Now, next thing we see they do is they bind Jesus as if to suggest he were some sort of serious threat. You know, Jesus presented himself to their mob in the garden without putting up any resistance, without trying to run away. Jesus even forbade his disciples from fighting back. And yet they bind him. As if he's some sort of insurrectionist. And this, of course, was all a part of their shred. They were playing, presenting Jesus to Pilate as a dangerous man. Remember, these priests had requested of Pilate a cohort of soldiers earlier, um, just several hours before. And this was necessary, they were telling Pilate, in order to secure Jesus. He was a dangerous insurrectionist. This was even the king of a possible, uh, a potential insurrectionist movement. So we need a cohort of soldiers, they said. Pilate grants them that. Jesus is now bound then and led along to Pilate in the same manner as any insurrectionist would be. So they tried him again, they bound him, and they delivered him to Pilate. They give him to Pilate now as if he were an insurrectionist. This is ironic. Because God gave Messiah to the Jews. And now the Jews are giving Messiah, their Messiah, to the Romans. How tragic. But delivering Jesus over to the Romans was necessary in their minds. And why was that the case? Why didn't they just try to knock off Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? They could have done that. Well, John 18.32 indicates the priest told Pilate at the outset of this trial, it is not lawful for us to put any man to death. Between the years 86 and 7, at least by the time of this trial, it's plain to us that the Jews had been stripped of their authority to execute capital punishment by the Romans. And, of course, the religious elites here, this establishment, these guys are powerful enough. 
And religious or not, they certainly could have eliminated Jesus. They did at times take the killing into their own hands. Only a few years after Jesus' death, they're going to martyr Stephen. They're going to do that in Jerusalem. And then during the reign of Emperor Claudius, we know later they murdered James, the brother of Jesus. So these guys could have done this. They certainly did do this at times. Why not in Jesus' case? Well, likely, in Jesus' case, these religious powers wanted Pilate to execute Jesus in order to avoid any charges that they had murdered him, uh, that they had murdered him for envy. They had a reputation to keep. And so they want Pilate, they want the Roman government to do the dirty work for them. They had a reputation to keep, and they also had a reputation to destroy, didn't they? They didn't want Jesus' name to live on as a martyr. They didn't want Jesus to be honored through the centuries as one who died a martyr's death. And so they figured they must have Jesus executed in the most shameful way possible, which is what crucifixion was all about. It was really a statement. So here's these religious leaders, these whited sepulchers, as Jesus called them. They're dressed sumptuously. They are piously parading about, preparing to celebrate the feast of Passover later on the same day. But now in this morning time, they are eager to kill the Lord's Passover. They're eager to kill the Son of God because of envy. That's these guys. They reject Christ for envy. And what is the religious power's rejection of Jesus got to do with us who love Jesus Christ? Well, concerning the first murder in human history, the Apostle John would say in 1 John 3.12, Cain slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. John says the first murder was due to envy. Then he says in the next verse, Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. Do you love Jesus Christ? Do people take issue with your love for Jesus, your stand for the Lord? Does that meet with resistance? Don't be surprised. I know we're striving to be like Jesus as a church. We certainly want to be. But don't ever get the idea that if we should be as holy as Jesus Christ and show his perfect love to this community, that this community would just embrace us. Because there would be, the scriptures would show us, some in our community who would hate us even more. Why? For the same reason that Cain murdered Abel. For the same reason these religious powers murdered Christ. For envy. For envy. Holiness exposes unholiness righteousness exposes unrighteousness the light that comes into the world exposes what's hidden in the darkness that's why these men wanted to put the light out they wanted to kill jesus for envy the religious powers rejected christ due to envy another reason we see here that people reject christ is demonstrated to us by pilate the roman prefect rejected christ due to fear Pontius Pilate also rejects Christ for different reasons than the priests. But verse 15 will tell us, wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas and hands Jesus over to be crucified. It ultimately comes down to fear for Pilate. Now his rejection is complex. It's sort of a complex affair. And yet when all is said and done, I believe we can say, 
that in this story, Pilate's rejection of Christ really boils down to fear. And since Pilate, millions, many, many millions have rejected Christ for fear. Fear of what people might think or do to them. So let's take a closer look at Pilate and his rejection of Christ. Many Christians have taken Pilate's attempts in the Gospels as somehow proof that he was a noble man, a man of virtue. But Pilate was not a good guy. He lived in Caesarea to the north on the Mediterranean coast. And uh, though his presence in Jerusalem would have been required during every feast when all the Jews would have been gathering here in Jerusalem, making their pilgrimage to the city, Pilate's title as prefect meant he was responsible for maintaining civil order in Judea and also ensuring that Judea continued to pay her taxes to Rome. Pilate served as prefect from AD 26 to 37. That's the longest of any prefect in Judea, which goes to show he was in some regards, a very capable governor, though history indicates he was equally cruel and stubborn. Josephus tells us how Pilate was behind the construction of an aqueduct bringing fresh water to Jerusalem, and fresh water was much needed. But Pilate, in order to finance the project, seized money from the Jews' treasury, from the temple, money dedicated to their God. And so, The Jews were then rioting in the streets and what Pilate did is he ordered his soldiers to disperse into the mobs disguised. And at his signal, they then unleashed their fury onto the people. Luke records an incident in his gospel where some Jews from Galilee had come to Jerusalem, likely for the Passover, bringing their sacrifices. But we're told for whatever reason they were butchered. Pilate had them butchered, and Luke says he mixed their blood with the blood of their sacrifices. That's the kind of a guy Pontius Pilate was. Philo wrote of Pilate that he was inflexible, stubborn, and cruel. He claims that to annoy the Jews, Pilate on one occasion set up votive shields in Jerusalem and, uh, uh, on Herod's palace. And when the Jews appealed to have the shields removed as an affront to their native customs, their, their religious beliefs, Pilate obstinately refused. This went on until the Jews finally sent an embassy to Tiberius. They wrote to the emperor directly. And we're told Tiberius wrote back to Pilate, threatening him and rebuking him and ordering him to remove the shields. I think that incident may play into Pilate's fear during this trial, but we'll come back to that as we look at Pilate's motivations in this trial. Pilate was eventually removed from office in AD 37 over this brutality, his brutality to put down a revolt at Samaria. And a tradition has it he eventually committed suicide. You get the idea. Pilate wasn't a virtuous man. He's no good guy. And the Gospels, though, we also see Pilate isn't impressed with Jesus' claims. Look at verse 2. Pilate questioned him, Are you the king of the Jews? And the emphasis in the Greek is on you. The the title, King of the Jews, appears six times, I've said, in this chapter. It's a title that ultimately belonged to the Messiah himself. And this is the official charge which the Jewish authorities have brought against Jesus. That he is claiming to be their king. Not Caesar. 
He's setting himself up as king over Caesar. And this must have been the charge that they brought to Pilate when they informed him last night that they needed a cohort of Roman soldiers to secure Jesus' capture. But now it seems that Pilate isn't taking this charge too seriously, is he? He perceives rather quickly that, that uh, the authorities here have really handed Jesus over to him for envy, verse 10. And what's more, of all the insurrectionists Pilate has examined in his time, Jesus isn't exactly insurrectionist material. He says this guy isn't the type. So he asks Jesus, you are the king of the Jews? If Jesus says yes, Pilate will have a reason for sending him to the cross, but Jesus replies, it is as you say. His reply is so subtle that Pilate is somewhat taken back, doesn't quite know what to make of Jesus. John records that, in effect, Jesus asks Pilate, do you really want to know for yourself, or are you simply asking me for political reasons? Are you just wanting to confirm the accusations against me? Is it a political interest, Pilate, in my kingship or just a, or, or a personal one? Pilate answers, I'm not a Jew. He says, your own nation delivered you to me. Tell me what you've done. So it's clear Pilate's only interested in Jesus for political purposes. So Jesus assures Pilate, he's no political insurrectionist. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then... My servants would be fighting. Well, that's good logic there. At John 18, 36, Therefore Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Aha, you are a king. But Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born. And for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Jesus is talking about the truth. So Pilate says next, What is truth? John says, when he had said this, he went out. Pilate left the question hanging. He left the question hanging because he had no genuine interest in ever hearing Jesus answer. Had Pilate waited for the answer, he would have heard Jesus say, I am the truth. I am the truth. As he declared in John 14, 6. But walking out on Jesus was Pilate's way of declaring his own unbelief. John showing us Pilate wasn't impressed with Jesus' claims. His claim to have been born a king. His claim to have been sent into this world to bear witness of the truth. His claim that everyone who takes the truth seriously listens to him. Pilate wasn't interested in Jesus' claims. And John goes on to say that Pilate went out to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. Meaning Pilate understood Jesus was an innocent man. But he didn't believe Jesus was the Son of God. There's a world of difference between those two things. So Pilate's not impressed with Jesus' claims, but the scriptures show us Pilate is impressed with Jesus' character. Pilate, after he has interviewed Jesus, declares him innocent to the chief priests, and we read in verse 3, the chief priests began to accuse him harshly. They're turning up their game. They're going even harder on Jesus now. So that in verse 4, then Pilate questioned him again, saying, Do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer. So Pilate was amazed. This Roman has seen a lot of cases. He has seen grown men break and weep like babies and plead and protest 
for mercy. He has seen men stoop to the lowest of the low and gravel and self-pity. But now he witnesses something he's never witnessed before. He sees a man accused of the most heinous charges, facing the most vile of torture and death, and that man doesn't say a word in his defense. That, that man is silent. He's perfectly quiet and composed. Once again, Isaiah's prophecy comes to mind. Isaiah 53, 7. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. Pilate is amazed. But Jesus' resolution to remain so perfectly calm, so perfectly quiet probably struck Pilate as the very epitome of Stoic composure. The Romans, a lot of them appraised the Stoics, Stoic philosophy. It was sort of this, just accept your fate without any passion or feeling. So that Pilate probably looked at Jesus and deeply admired this. The Roman prefect was impressed with Jesus' character. So here's Pilate. Being pressured to reject Jesus, he genuinely is interested to... to learn more about Jesus to an extent, and he is appreciative or, or admires Jesus' character, but ultimately is skeptical of Jesus' claims. Pilate's rejection of Jesus then prefigures all those in this world that can say, Jesus was a good man. Jesus was a good teacher. But I'm not so sure Jesus was the Son of God. Pilate prefigures all those in this world who can only say positive things about Jesus, but they are skeptical of his claims. They do not believe he is the only begotten Son of God. They do not believe he is the way, the truth, the life. And you see, you can admire Jesus for all his character, for all his wonderful deeds, for all those sayings that we like to lift from the Gospels and quote to others. We can do that. We can admire Jesus without submitting ourselves to his claims. But that's the rub, isn't it? God is not demanding that you simply approve Jesus as an innocent man. God is demanding that you receive his son as the son of God, as everything he claimed to be, as your Lord, as sovereign king over all your life. Now it's not merely for skepticism that Pilate rejects Christ, the Gospels indicate Pilate ultimately fears the crowd more than God. And that's what verses 6 through 15 go on to show us. Only about a year and a half before Jesus' trial, I think this plays into what's happening here in the background of our text, Emperor Tiberius had executed a politician named Sejanus. Sejanus was trying to overthrow him. And in the years that followed, AD 31 to AD 34, Tiberius the emperor was investigating and executing anyone that he believed to be a co-conspirator with this man Sejanus. The traditional date for Jesus' trial and death is AD 33. That would mean that this trial that we are examining right now falls right in the middle of this period when the emperor is on a hunt for sedition. And many scholars also believe that Pilate was actually appointed directly over Judea by Sejanus. Tiberius had given him that sort of power. And this would mean that Pilate was at this time walking on eggshells with the emperor. He is in a very precarious position for all of his stubbornness, that we do see stubbornness in this text, yet we see Pilate is between a rock and a hard place, and the religious authorities knew it. 
And what they are doing in this narrative is they are playing Pilate's fear to their advantage. John 19, 12 tells us the Jews cried out the more. When Pilate wouldn't give in, they said, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Well, that scared Pilate. He believed Jesus was innocent, but Jesus wasn't worth his life and position. So Mark 15, 15 says, Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them, and after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Sure, there's no ill intent. There's nothing malicious about Pilate's rejection of Christ, but this is rejection all the same. Pilate's involvement in this trial has never been forgotten. He would try to wash his hands of this trial, but he would never be able to clear his name. To this day, we know Pilate is the man who oversaw the crucifixion of our Lord. And millions will not embrace Christ as their King and Savior. Why? Because they fear what others will think or say or do. What a tragedy. We've seen the religious powers rejected Christ for envy. We've seen the Roman prefect rejected Christ for fear. But finally, the riotous people rejected Christ for stupidity. The riotous people rejected Christ due to stupidity. And by stupidity, I'm not insulting anyone's intelligence. That term means lacking good sense or judgment. And men never showed a greater lack of good sense and judgment than in crucifying the Son of God. Let's examine how the crowd came to this. We've seen in context that Pilate has personally rejected Jesus, though he wants nothing to do with the man's execution. That's because, first of all, he's a stubborn Roman. He doesn't like being told what to do, uh, let alone by the Jews. And he knows Jesus is innocent. He knows that these religious powers only envy Jesus. And to make matters worse, for Pilate, his own wife requests that he have nothing to do with Jesus' execution. Matthew would tell us, Matthew 26, 19. So the Gospels show Pilate making several attempts to get Jesus off the hook, at least trying to wash his own hands of the, of the matter. Luke says that when Pilate learns in the course of this trial, Jesus is from Galilee. He immediately sends Jesus to Herod Antipas. Herod was in town. He was in Jerusalem for the same feast. And Galilee was Herod's jurisdiction. So Pilate thinks, oh great, I'm going to pass the buck. His problem now. Well, we know from Mark's gospel that Herod was well aware of Jesus' miracles, having served in Galilee. So Herod wants to see a miracle. He's hoping that Jesus will now entertain him. But when Herod learns that this king of the Jews is no entertainer, he loses interest and he, he mocks Jesus. He returns Jesus to Pilate. So Pilate's running out of options here. And what he does next, sort of his last attempt, is, is to try to get around the religious rulers by going directly to the people, appealing directly to the people and giving them a choice. So we're going to see the people had a choice to make. Look at verse 6. Now at the feast, he, that is Pilate, used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. The man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who committed murder in the insurrection. We don't know what insurrection Barabbas was involved in. There was many in Palestine. But whatever Barabbas' role as an insurrectionist, Matthew 27, 16 tells us he was a notorious criminal. He was a notorious prisoner. It means 
everyone knew this man was a murderer. No one doubted Barabbas was a guilty man. So you have the holiest man who ever lived on the one hand, and you have this convicted felon on the other. What a contrast. But there's more irony here. Barabbas was not this man's first name. That was his surname, his family name. It literally means a son of a father. Barabbas, a son of a father. But when reading Matthew's gospel from the Greek New Testament, there you'll find bracketed before the name Barabbas is the name Jesus. Jesus. It's placed in brackets because we're not for certain that this was original to the original manuscripts, but the name Jesus was very common in the first century. And as one scholar puts it, this would certainly have heightened the contrast here with Pilate bringing forward another Jesus. You have Jesus Barabbas, literally Jesus, a son of a father, standing over against Jesus, the son of the father. How ironic. What a choice this was. Verse 8 says, The crowd went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. Pilate answered them saying, Do you want for me to release for you the king of the Jews? Pilate knows that Jesus has been somewhat popular among the people. And so he also knows that this is why the religious powers have delivered Jesus over to him in the first place. They don't like that Jesus is popular. They envy him. And so he cleverly decides to try and play the crowd against the Sanhedrin by offering to release Jesus at this time. This was a custom that he did to show his mercy, uh, nothing out of a good heart, but really just a political maneuver. And so he offers to release Jesus, called the King of the Jews, over Barabbas, this guilty criminal. The choice here is iconic, I think we can say, because it's not simply a choice between two persons, right? It's a choice between two principles. It's a choice that remains with us to this day. The people can choose the Jesus of righteousness, who represented the Son of God, with power on earth to forgive sins, the Jesus who said, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Or they could choose the Jesus of revolution, the Jesus who represented material freedom from Rome, the Jesus who took up the sword as a political answer to their problems. That's the choice. Verse 11 says, but the chief priests stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. Matthew 27, 20 says, they persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. We don't know exactly how the Sanhedrin did this. Just, uh, Josephus tells us, he gives us several examples of this crowd in Jerusalem during the time of Passover and how they were so easily excited to violence. We also see that in the book of Acts, by the way, too. So this all fits in character here. We don't know exactly how this happens then, but whatever the case, the people choose to blindly follow the blind. And we see this today more than ever, don't we? Where technology has made it so much easier for politicians and technocrats to instantly sway the opinions of the masses. Maybe we're talking about views of sex or morality, or maybe well, it's simply a person who's suddenly being accused on a trial where the, a verdict's not yet been passed. Somebody is accused of an injustice, and in just moments, millions, 
millions of people can be instantly programmed to think or believe or even do whatever the digital priesthood tells them. Add to this now the reality of human sinfulness. And you realize that we have a serious problem on our hands. The Bible says all we like sheep have gone astray. We have a wayward bent because of sin at work within our very nature. Scripture teaches that our greatest problem isn't that we don't know the truth, but that we don't want the truth. This is a problem. In other words, the Bible indicates the blind folly of this people wasn't exceptional to our race. As easy as it is to get down on them for their folly. It comes to us, this folly, this blindness comes to us rather naturally. And only by the grace of God can we ever escape this demise, this gradual, irrational, immoral demise of our race. These people had a choice, but they chose to blindly follow their blind leaders. But finally, we see they were beyond reasoning. Verse 12, answering again, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? And Here's the question of the hour, isn't it? It's the inescapable question about the unavoidable Christ. But they shouted back, verse 13, Crucify him! But Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! It's a sad day when the debate is decided by whoever can shout the loudest. But that's what's happening. And like these people, we all have a limited interest in the truth. Pilate, these Jews, this crowd, this mob, and even ourselves, we have a limited interest in the truth. It didn't matter to these people who was innocent or guilty, what was right or wrong at this moment. What mattered to them, apparently, was vindicating Barabbas and rejecting this man, Jesus. This man, Jesus, who in their estimation was a traitor. You see, Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus, this king of the Jews, he was a traitor for claiming to be their Messiah without giving them what they demanded of a Messiah. One commentator put it this way. They did not want the true Son of the Father. They wanted a different Jesus. A Jesus they could live with. A Jesus who would not make them feel guilty. A Jesus of this world. For 2,000 years, the world has cried for a different Jesus. One like us. The people rejected Jesus due to a tragic lack of good sense and judgment, stupidity. And the stupidity was not an intellectual problem, it was a moral, spiritual one, deep-seated in their own will. Sin breeds stupidity. Mark it down. Wherever there's a love for sin, there's going to be a lack of good sense. But this same stupidity that once blinded this Jerusalem crowd still blinds millions today. I think one great example of this is the stupidity, the gullibility, the naivety of millions of people following blindly religious leaders of this world. 
They simply do whatever their priest says. They simply do whatever their imam says. Whatever their religious authorities say, they go along with it. They do not have any interest in looking into and investigating Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. They are content to follow the blind. And so then, shame on us if we claim to have the truth and we don't share it with these following in such blindness. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, verse 15, Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Scourging was a standard preliminary measure to crucifixion. And it's not going to be easy, but we'll, we're going to have to look at that next week. It's, we're going to look at the crucifixion. It's a difficult message, but it's one we need to examine. It's one we need to meditate upon. What we see here is that people do reject Jesus for all sorts of reasons. And yet nothing could possibly be worth your rejection of Jesus Christ. Nothing could possibly be worth rejecting Jesus. So then, what will you do with your king? What will you do with the one who created you? The one who gave you life. The one who has entered into this world for you and spoken to you. What will you do with your king? Of course, many will say in our culture, well, I don't reject Jesus. I'm very fond of Jesus Christ. I certainly wouldn't say that I reject him. But we must understand that the biblical meaning of receiving the son is not simply affirming he was a good person, a good man. Anyone could do that. The devil would love for you to do that if that's where you stop short. Receiving the Son of God is affirming Him, believing Him, embracing Him for everything He claimed to be. That means your Lord, the sovereign over every square inch of your life, your Savior, your only hope of eternal salvation, your, the way, the truth, the life, no alternatives. Do you embrace Jesus like that? It's interesting that in this story, Pilate affirms Jesus is innocent. He's done no evil. Three times in the course of the trial, Pilate would say, he's innocent. Jesus was innocent. But we're not. And that's why this is happening. The innocent is being condemned for the guilty. You and I are Barabbas. We are the ones that deserve the cross. And Jesus is going to the cross in our place. That's what this is all about. That's what the message of the gospel is about. The Bible says, to as many as receive Christ, if we will receive him, to those God gives the right to become his own children. You have a choice this morning. You can reject the Son or you can receive the Son. But what you do with the Son of God ultimately comes back to haunt us because what we do with the Son has everything to do with what God does with us. Let's pray.